Welcome to Grace Church this morning, and uh, I'm excited that you are here and that you're watching. That's an amazing thing, and so today we're going to continue in our series on Philippians, and today we find ourselves in Philippians chapter number two. My favorite chapter of all Philippians is chapter two. It is just an amazing section of scripture, and I I hope that I can do it justice as we, as we look together at this particular chapter. And so in the first eight verses, what we're going to be dealing with is the concept of peace in our life. And, and the peace that happens here is not the kind of peace of, you know, this feeling peace. It's the idea of how you and I deal with our conflicts in life. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, there's nothing that robs us of, of peace in our life faster than conflict. Would you agree with that? I mean, conflict, if you could just, I mean, I'm looking forward to heaven when there is absolutely no conflict at all, right? And it just seems like, you know, every time you turn around, somebody's disagreeing with you, or, you know, you just have to go on Facebook for five minutes to see how, what kind of conflict's there, and people post things, and then there's 35,000 other people that post about what you just posted, and, and, uh, and I'm going, good night, can't we just love each other? And can't we just respect each other? And so Philippians has kind of the formula for that and how you and I are supposed to deal with life together. And uh, I hope that, you will, um, that you'll kind of lean forward and take a deep breath here today. And uh, if you brought your phone or your Bible or whatever mechanism you have today, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2 most of the morning. Just a couple other verses besides that. But uh, So you just turn there or flip there, wherever, whatever you're doing. So I want to kind of introduce a concept. We're going to be looking at the first two verses of Philippians uh, chapter 2. And uh, this is what is called, a f- in, in the Greek language, this is what is called a first-class conditional clause. So what I mean by that, and what Paul means by that, is that this is an if-then clause. If this is true, then. That's what a first-class conditional clause is. And the implication of a first-class conditional clause is that it is true. So it's not, it's not like Paul, as he writes these questions, it's not like he is writing them and going, I hope this is true. He's writing them and he knows that they're true. And then he's going to tell us what kind of response that you and I should have. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? And the answer to that would be? Absolutely. That was a weak yes. Let's try that one more time. Yeah, there we go. So is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Yes, there is. There is absolute encouragement from belonging to Christ. Is there any comfort from his love? And the answer would be yes. Any fellowship together in the spirit? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, Are your hearts tender and compassionate? And the answer to that would be yes. Then if all that is true, then... So this is the then part. This is now my responsibility. This is because all this is true now, then I have to have a certain response to the truth that God has just given to me. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and one purpose. And oftentimes conflict happens when you and I are not working with one mind and one purpose. We're working our own purpose out. We're trying to make people think we're smart or, or brilliant or whatever we're doing or that we're right and they're wrong. And, and so Paul is addressing that. 
And Paul uses four expressions that describe the unity that God wants you and I to have together in our marriages, in our church, in our family, in our city. He has this idea of what unity looks like. And he says, first of all, you and I have to be like-minded. That doesn't mean we have to agree upon everything there is. But we have to be like-minded. That means that we have to have a mind that thinks in the same direction. There's, there, is, there are some things that we can, we can differ on, but the truth is, is that how we differ makes all the difference in the world. We're to be one in love. No matter what you think or what, or what I think, you and I should be, have one thought in mind, and that is that my purpose in life is to love you and you to love me. Do you understand that? That's my purpose. And that we're to be one in spirit and one in purpose. And Paul is describing souls that beat together as one heartbeat. It, it would be like clocks that strike together at the same moment. That's, what the, that's the kind of unity that Paul is talking about here. Uh, wouldn't that be great if that was in your marriage? Amen? Come on now. If that was in your marriage, that you're with your spouse, that you are, your heart is beating together with you know, just the same thought processes, and, and uh, it would be like, you say to your wife, I think we should have sex. And she says, I was just thinking the same thing. That's what it would be like. Okay, you can send your letters. I, I don't care. Just <laughs> that. So that was approved by my wife, just so you know. I ran it by her and she said, yeah, it's, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> say that really, but I just made that up. So Paul talks about four things that destroy this kind of unity. So the evil one, we have an enemy, and he tries to do whatever he can to disrupt us. And so Paul talks about four things that destroy the kind of unity that produces this amazing spirit that we walk in this world. So the first thing that Paul talks about is inappropriate competition. Inappropriate competition. Now, as someone who just loves sports, I, I'm you know, a guy that... You know, I am in withdrawals right now because the tournament's not, you know, going to happen, and, and baseball's been canceled, the college baseball's been ca canceled, so I'm just kind of, I have the shakes a little bit, you know, just saying. I'm highly competitive. If I'm going to play a game with you, I'm going to, my, my job is to destroy you. <laughs> I'm just going to say, if you're thinking that, you know, Pastor Dan's going to just let me win, I've got, I've got, I'm just going to tell you that's not going to happen. You know, about 25, 30 years ago, I was playing, I think it was Uno with my wife. And you all know what Uno is, right? Okay, we were playing this board game of Uno. And uh, so I got dealt this perfect hand, this perfect hand. And, you know, it, it doesn't happen often in life, but it was one of those things that I went boom, 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 boom. And ah, uh, voila, you're out, I'm in, I win, I'm number one, right? And uh, I'm going to tell you, it was very difficult in my marriage for several months after that because somehow my wife thought I cheated I didn't it was it was just I'm just competitive and I you know I probably smiled just a little too you know big when I beat her I probably maybe said some things I shouldn't have said uh, but I'm just competitive right are you competitive you know most of us are a little competitive and that's not altogether bad but when it becomes inappropriate that's what destroys the culture that you and I live in that's what destroys marriages that's what destroys uh, churches is when it becomes inappropriate. So in verse 3, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. So inappropriate competition happens when I am doing something from selfish ambition. I'm not thinking about you. 
I'm just thinking about me, and I'm just trying to get ahead of you, and that, my friend, is inappropriate competition, and we often compete with people on our own team. That's the problem. Oftentimes, husbands and wives, husbands and, you know, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, you get the picture. We compete with people on our same team, and more often than not in families in particular, we come to it, um, we come to the idea of pecking orders and putting people on top, and oftentimes humor is used and, and uh, to put people down, and, and so we create this culture that's inappropriate. But let's be honest, inappropriate competition comes from an evil heart. Even though sometimes we do it with humor, it comes from an evil heart. Competition in an inappropriate way comes, according to the book of James, from an evil heart. So let me just show you this so you know I'm not making it up. James chapter 4, just keep your finger in the book of Philippians if you brought your Bible, and flip over to James chapter 4 with me for just a minute. It'll be on the screen if you don't want to do that, if you're just going to be lazy, I'm just going to say. <laughs> I'm kidding you, I don't think you're lazy, it's just, just going to be on the screen. So James chapter 4 verse 1 says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, you scheme and kill to get it. You, ha you are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. So James says that James is writing to the church. He's not writing to them, outsiders. He's writing to insiders. And, he, you know, basically it's saying that, you know, the truth is, is that where most of our inappropriate competition comes from is from an evil heart that sometimes is filled with all the wrong motives, and sometimes it's not an intentional evil heart. What I mean by that is oftentimes people are driven by shame, and shame is something that is powerful in our lives, and sometimes it leads us to wrong motives and trying to be ahead of people and trying to get our worth from all the wrong ways. And I'm just gonna say this to you, listen to me carefully. If there's any shame in your life, I have a cure for it. I do. Not me personally, but the Word of God has a cure for it. So let me just introduce the, the, the cure for shame. The cure for shame is understanding your worth in Jesus. That's what it is. And so I, here's the, here, you know, when, if you were to come to me for counseling for shame, so I'm going to save a lot of counseling time right now. So if you were to come to me and you were talking to me about the shame issues in your life, this is what I would say to you. I would say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look yourself in the mirror for the next 60 days. And I want you to say these words out loud to yourself. I want you to look yourself in the eye, in the mirror, and here's what I want you to say out loud to yourself. I am worth God's son to God. Because James says that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It has the capability of directing the whole course of life. So what I'm confessing sets the direction of my life. And so if I'm confessing truth, and that is truth, I am worth God's son. You know why and how I know that? is because that's exactly what God the Father paid for me with, the death of his son. He understood the purchase price of, of me, and he was willing to pay the death of his son, so that gives worth to my life. That's not pride, that's not arrogance, that's not, that's not you know, positive talk, that's truth. The truth is, is that I am worth God's son. And if I would just understand that, a lot of the conflict that I have in my life, a lot of the shame issues that, that create all sorts of conflict would just go away out inside of my life. And so we have to look at inappropriate ambition and look at the root of it. Sometimes it's shame. And, uh, and I'm just gonna tell you, religion doesn't solve it. I'm telling you right up front, religion doesn't solve your, your inappropriate ambition. It just doesn't. There was a bright, ambitious young student at Stanford, 
and he was given a summer trip by his parents to the Far East. And uh, while he was there, he ran into a group of Buddhists that were there, and they convinced him that, that uh, he was, you know, had wrong thinking, that he, was, he studied so hard not to learn but to get better grades than his friends, and that was wrong. And, and they convinced him that he worked so hard not to, uh, be, to be better in society but to, to purchase more than his peers could purchase. And, and the reason he wanted to date the most beautiful girls was because uh, it wasn't to find true love, but it was to, to be seen with the most admired women. So this young man admitted that all that was true and, and that uh, he called his parents you know, from Tokyo and he says, listen, uh, I have decided to stay. I'm going to drop out of school, which every parent loves to hear, by the way. I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to join a Buddhist monastery. And if you, can, you can imagine the disappointment of his parents. So they get a letter from him six months later. And this is what the letter says. Um, it says, Dear Dad and Mom, I know you weren't happy with my decision to stay here, but I want to tell you how happy I am now. I'm at peace for the first time in my life, living in an environment without competition or envy. Uh, here we share all of life, and we're all equal. Uh, this way of life is so much in harmony with the inner essence of my soul that in only six months I've become the number two disciple <laughs> in the monastery, and I think I can be number one by June. And I'm just saying, I tell you that story because religion doesn't solve the problem. I don't care what, what you think, it doesn't. The problem is that we have a heart issue. And until you deal with that heart issue, you're still going to have inappropriate competition in your life. The second thing that destroys unity is the idea of pride or conceit. You call it whatever you want to. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing, absolutely nothing from selfish ambition ambition or conceit the bible's clear that what precedes uh destruction is pride if you want to destroy yourself just lift yourself up just lift yourself up just get just read all the press reports about yourself if you want to destroy yourself pride's the way to do it there was an arrogant department of agricultural representative that stopped at a farm and uh he's chatting with the old farmer and he says i need to inspect your farm and the farmer said Go right ahead, that's not a problem, but you better not go in that field over there. And the agricultural representative said, listen, he pulled out his badge, showed the farmer his badge, and said, this badge allows me to go anywhere I want to go in your farm, and I'm going to go in that field. So the farmer said, okay, go for it. And uh, a little bit later, he heard screams, and he saw this DOA uh, agent running for the fence with his prize bull right behind him. And uh, so the old farmer called out, show him your badge. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just saying pride is a very destructive thing along our in our lives. And I, and I hope you understand that it's, it, it, that's true. And here's the deal is that um, in all of us, there's some sense of pride in our life. There's this, uh, this, we call it stubbornness sometimes. We call it lots of different names. But the truth is, is that all of that is arrogance, and in God's economy, it has absolutely no value in it whatsoever. And I'm just going to tell you that the only way out of that is to repent and turn and humble yourself before God. You know, there's a new, there's kind of a new thing going on in our, a new medical issue going on in our culture, and it's called selfie wrist. 
And it's an actual medical issue where people taking so many selfies are actually getting carpal tunnel and they're having to have, they're having to have you, know, you know, procedures done along the way. And it's just kind of the sign of the times of what we live in, right? I mean, you know, you don't want to have a selfie, you know, issue. You just don't. That would be just a little bit out of bounds, I, I would think. So the third thing that Paul tells us is that uh, the reason that we have conflict and how to avoid conflict, the reason he sa- the thing he says is that we're not valuing others. So I, and I mean really, truly, genuinely valuing other people. Verse 4 says, let each of you look. Notice that word look. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And uh, I, I just telling you i want you to think about what that word look means the idea of looking is uh, the idea of looking for an opportunity to breathe some value into somebody so let's go back to that word look that word look literally means to scope or it comes from the idea of it's it's a greek word scopos and we translate that into telescope and so we should be scoping this is what paul is saying we should be scoping the interests of others you know, we should, when we're checking somebody out, we should be checking them out for the purposes of saying, what kind of value can I breathe into their life? What can I add to their life? I don't know that we see each other that way, right? I think we normally look at somebody as, what can they do for me? You know, we look at somebody, you come to church, you're a businessman, you, I, I don't mean to pick on you, love you if you're a businessman. You come to church and you say, I wonder what contacts I can make here. It's natural, it's just evil. Smile at me when I say that. We should be saying, what can I do? What can I do? How can I scope somebody else out so that I can just breathe value on them? That's what really brings unity into the body of Christ, and it's such a powerful thing. There's this Chinese, old Chinese Christian by the name of Watchman Nee, famous pastor in, in China. And he tells a story in one of his books about a pastor that he knew that was you know, he was a lay pastor, and he, and bottom line is he had this farm, and he was working the farm, but the problem was is that every time he went to water his field, uh, the farmer next to him had stolen the water, and that's a dilemma, right, when you're a farmer? You see, without water, you can't, you, you can't, you can't uh, have crops, and you, if you don't have crops, you don't eat, and if you don't eat, that's bad news, so here was this pastor's solution. His pastor's solution was simply this. He got up earlier than the other guy. He went up and watered his neighbor's crops first. That's looking at someone else's needs as more important than your own. Then he would water his own. That's, a, that's the attitude that you and I are to bring to the Christian life. Do you all understand that? I mean, you all are just staring at me like, you know, this is, this is uh, brand new to me. That's the kind of life that magnifies Jesus. That's the kind of life that calls attention to his glory and to his honor. And that's what Paul says to us in the book of Philippians. And um, then the fourth, the fourth thing that Paul says is if I'm going to have the right spirit about me and I'm not going to be a part of that division inside the body of Christ or anywhere, I need to have a Christ-like attitude. And so in verse 5, and this is where we're going to camp for the rest of our time together, because this is what I hope you go back and meditate on this week. In fact, since we're going to supposed to be isolated a lot this week, why don't we spend some time in the Bible? Wouldn't that be a good idea? So this passage, I'm just going to encourage you, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, 
and the rest of the passages that we're going to talk about through about verse 8. I want us to go and meditate this week. And this is what it says. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So that's a, that's a great plaque, right? Have this mind also which was in Christ Jesus is how the King James says it. But verse 5 says you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So the question then is, what is Paul talking about? What attitude am I supposed to be having? Because that's what's going to exalt Christ. And so he says in verse 6, this is what he says. Though he was God, just in case people say to you that Jesus never claimed to be God or that others around him didn't claim that he was God, this verse answers that question. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He was God for all eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever. He sat on the throne next to his father. He was equal to his father in every way. And there came a point where he decided to to empty himself of that right. So even though he was God, he didn't think equality with God was something to to cling to. Instead, he gave up his own divine privileges. He, he gave up his own divine privileges. He took the humble position as a slave. We don't like that word in our culture because it's so demeaning, right? Slave is a demeaning word. Yeah, that's right. That's what Paul's intending it to be. And so he, was, he, he took this position as a slave and it was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross that's the attitude that paul is saying that should be in every single one of us who follow jesus when i when i'm at costco that's the attitude that i should have i should let go of my privileged lifestyle and i should live as a servant i should i should not have an entitlement in any way shape or form and i would say if there's any sin in america that is kind of a popular sin and an acceptable sin. It's the idea of entitlement. That I have these rights. Let me tell you, the moment you come to Christ, you forfeit all of those rights. You don't have rights anymore. You have the privilege of being a servant of Jesus. That's what you have. And that's the mind that you and I are to take. And, that, and so, it, you know, I, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again, and, and eventually we'll all get it together. And, and this is a struggle in my life. I'm okay with standing on the stage and telling you about it, but when you start treating me like a slave, that's when I have a problem. When you start ordering me around and telling me what I can do and shouldn't do or what I, can't, you know, what I can and can't do, I'm just saying that's where I struggle with it. And uh, there are three things that jump off the pages of this passage to me, and I hope they do to you. First of all, Jesus did not demand his rights. He just didn't. He did not demand his rights and I think in our culture in our time that's something for us to remember and learn and put into our lives because I think we're amazing at demanding our rights second thing that jumps off the page of scripture to me uh, he was he, he serving was an attitude not just not just a platitude it was an attitude it was serving was an attitude and it it, it had an action to it and then he was willing, the third thing that jumps off the page is he was willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of others. He died a criminal's death. So how far are you willing to go in this? How far are you willing to go to be this servant of Jesus? Stanley Joes tell, tells this story of when he was a missionary to India, they had to take turns cleaning their latrine and the latrine, latrine did not have running water. And so 
on one particular instance, uh, one of his converts there was kind of balking about cleaning the latrine. And, he sa- and, and so Stanley asked him, so why? So what's the big deal? You just go do it. Just take a bucket and let's just, just go do it. And he says, well, I'm converted, but I'm just not that converted yet. And, I, you know, I, th- that's kind of funny, but the truth is, is godly servants aren't choosy about what God asks them to do. We just do it. We just do it. Many of us are converted, but just not that far. Let that sink in. Just not that far. Godly servants don't say, listen to me carefully, Godly servants don't say, I'm not going to do that. I'll do anything but that. I'll do anything but serve in children's ministry. Godly servants don't do that. Godly servants say, whatever you want, that's what I'll do. So let me tell you along the way, let me just take a time out here and tell you why we decided to have services this weekend live instead of just doing it instead of just going out and, you know, just doing it digitally or on the Internet. Because that would have been a lot easier for me because I could have showed up at the 9 o'clock hour and just preached. And uh, I'd have been done for the day. And I could have, you know, kicked my feet up for the rest of the day. So why did I make a decision for us to have live services? The answer to that question is, is that, you know, we were discussing it. And I said, time out. I just need to have some time of prayer. I, we can't make a decision without asking Jesus what he wants us to do. So I went to my office for a half hour. I got on my, on my knees and I said, God, <laughs> you know my heart. I'd rather have digital services and live services. You, you know who I am. You know what I, you know, that's the, easy, that's the easiest way to do. And uh, I'm telling you, God says, <laughs> I don't, uh, so I don't care. This is what I want you to do. Don't cancel. Don't cancel. So I, it's not that I'm brave or it's not that I'm, you know, smart or it's not. I'm just doing what Jesus asked me to do. It's just simply as that. And sometimes when Jesus asks us to do something, it's contrary to what we want to do in our flesh. And so the servant of God never says, I don't do that. I don't do windows, right? I just don't do that. Uh, and we don't say no one is going to tell me what to do. That's that's one of those privileges that we grew up in America with. Uh, I don't have to put up with this. That's a statement that people make all the time. That doesn't reflect the mind of Christ, does it? I don't have to put up with this. And I don't get any respect is another thing that we say. So the question that I want to end with our time with together today is how far are you converted? How far are you converted? I mean, are you all the way? Or just part of the way? Are you sold out to Jesus? Where you're saying, I want, I want with all my heart, mind, and soul to exalt Christ? Or are you going, Lord, here are the conditions of my contract? You know what I mean? Here are the conditions of my contract. I'll do this, I won't do that. I think we should be yes Christians. I think we should say, whatever you say, I'll do. I think we should put no conditions on what Jesus asks us to do whatsoever and I think that is the most blessed and joyous way to live if you want joy in your life there's no greater joy in life than saying yes to Jesus there isn't when you say yes to Jesus and you know you're saying yes to Jesus there is no greater joy in that moment in that time than you, you just can't find anything greater than that 
there's this peace that comes over your soul and it's a it's an amazing thing and so the question i guess that i want to end with is this is, is simply this do you really 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 want to be like jesus because we're told to have his mind if we want to be like jesus who did not hold on to god being being equal to god he didn't hold on to that privilege he emptied himself of the right to be regarded as god and he knew that when he would do that, that he would go to the cross and he would die a criminal's death. And he did it anyway. And now Paul says, by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to live a life. I'm supposed to live a life that is surrendered wholly to Jesus. That's not an abnormal thing. That's the normal Christian life. That's the normal Christian life, is just to say yes to Jesus, whatever he says. And I should have no exception clauses. Jesus didn't say, I'll do anything except go to the cross. I'll do anything but be beaten. I'll, be, I'll do anything but don't let him put that crown of thorns on my head. I'll do anything, but I don't want to die alone. I'll do anything, but I don't want to be abandoned on the cross. Didn't say any of those things. And that's what he expects from you and I. Is to be, yes, I'll do that kind of Christians. That's the mind of Christ. And when I have that mind of Christ like that, it creates unity. When we all do that together, it creates this unity. And we're not competing against each other, and we're not... We're all walking in the same direction. We have all of one goal, and that is to exalt Jesus in our life. And when all that happens, it's such a beautiful picture of who Christ is that the world can't resist it. That's why Paul wrote this. Because the world can't resist when the church walks in unity. It's what they're looking for because of the conflict in their own lives. So I hope it's true of our lives. I pray it is. We're going to, I'm going to have you all stand. In fact, why don't you do that right now? And uh, we're not going to end with a song. We'll have a little song for you to walk out with today. But uh, thanks for coming. Philippians chapter 2, why don't you med meditate on it this week? Why don't you think about it a lot? And then ask the question, is that reflect my life? That, is that what I want? Is that what I, what changes do I have to make if that's going to be my kind of Christianity? Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone here. Thank you for everyone watching online. And I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, God, that you will allow us to be Philippians 2 Christians. In Jesus' holy and powerful name I pray for his glory. Amen. Thanks for coming.